You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Mary Harrington. My guest on this occasion is Mary Harrington, who's a very thoughtful and very honest person who displays great courage, I have to say. She's a contributing editor at Unheard in the United Kingdom. She writes for other outlets uh, as well, including First Things, The New Statesman, and her own Substack, where she writes regularly. She's also just published her first book, Feminism Against Progress. I think you'll enjoy this. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. And can we kick off? I understand that your grandmother gave you some advice that you've never forgotten and that impacted your life uh, once. Can I ask what that was and why it was so powerful? (laughs) Uh, My grandmother was a very practical woman. Um, She was a doctor. She was a farmer. She she was a mum. She she got on with stuff the whole life. She was never she was never idle, and and she always she always saw life as it was. I thought. And she was quite old by the time she gave that advice. I think she was already in a retirement home. But she and I were great friends. We always, we always were, all through my adult life. I remember when I was at university, we'd ring, I'd ring her on, on a Sunday and we'd do the, the big cryptic crossword for the weekend down the phone together. So she was a great friend. And one, one day when I was in my, I think I was sort of late, late-ish 20s, I went to visit her and I told her what was going on in my life. And she said, she sort of paused and looked at me after, and after a moment or two, she said, you, you know, Mary, I think you should grow your hair and get married. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, it was excellent advice as it turned out. Um, I did, and I did, um, and as as it turned out, she was right. Uh, but it sort of took me by surprise at the time because I had very short hair. I was very much not married. I was living in assorted, um, sketchy house shares and sort of commune type setups and leading a very uh, a very experimental sort of life, uh, which was fun and interesting. And and her, her advice was timely um, because it hit on something I hadn't really been able to put into words at the time, which was that it was starting to become less fun. As I got older, living like that stopped being, stopped feeling as though it could go on forever. Um, and it's, and it, it was beginning to dawn on me, I think, although I, I, don't, I don't know that I'd have put it like this to myself, but it was beginning to dawn on me that I was getting older. Um, and that leading a, an experimental, communitarian, um, avant-garde-ish sort of life um, not be as fun by the time I was, I don't know, 45 or 60 or older than as it was when I was 24. And, and you know, I don't I don't think I sort of went away and ruminated. Um, I didn't spend lots of time thinking, right, by myself. Or, and I didn't, I didn't abruptly uh, make any changes the next day, but it stuck with me. Um, it must have stuck with me and it must have had an impact on me. Um, I think I think what Grandma was trying to say, and she was she was a very, as I said, she was a very practical person, very clever but also very practical. Um, was have you considered being normal? Uh, which of which I, I honestly hadn't up to that point. I had I I think I had sincerely not considered being normal uh, as as an available option. Um, it was it just seemed obvious to me that uh, the way to live was in in defiance or in contravention of any kind of expected expected social norms or expected that doing it like that just wasn't going to work for me it was going to be boring and dull and stuffy and conformist and etc 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 and that the the obvious the obvious ethical experimental avant-garde-ish um, thing to do was to try and try and 
try and devise a set of principles for me for living from scratch. That this was this that that was that was the obvious right and proper thing to do. I mean, um, I'd, I'd ingested a fair amount, I suppose, of critical theory when I was at university, which which kind of underscored all of that. Um, I was a I was a radical leftist. I, I believed in um, flouting the flouting and thwarting and subverting the status quo. Um, so just be normal was <laughs> paradoxically very subversive advice at the time. Um, but I tried it, and as it as it turned out, she was right. I mean, not least that it's it it turns out. I think one of the great one of the great secrets of being normal is that it's 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 actually very liberating in terms of in terms of how eccentric you then have permission to be because you fly under the radar. Would part of what she meant and part of your experience have been that fun's one thing, but happiness and contentedness and purpose are tied somehow to accepting responsibility, taking on and accepting and exercising responsibility? Well, I suppose that's that, that's the conclusion I've come to since. But I think for for me at the time, just to to set a bit of context for your but for your audience, um, I didn't. I, yeah, I, I was a I was a very I was a very radical leftist, and I was a very um, a very I was very I suppose I was committed to an early an, an early version of what we think of as woke now. Um, you know, I went on marches, and I I believed in the whole uh, anybody can be anything they say they are, or at least I at least I wanted to try and believe it, and I had a good old I had a good old experimental go at believing it, and I I took my friends seriously when they said they when they when they said they had special pronouns and. Yeah, all that. Um, I mean, it was all in very, in very kind of germinal form in the noughties. This was some time ago. It hadn't kind of eaten the entire culture the way it has now. Um, and and I think it was. I I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about responsibility or um, contentment because um, I was I was much more. I, I hadn't really thought about the relationship between responsibility and meaning and contentment and. Um, actually, being able to build anything serious in your life, because at that point I was, I, w- I was too sort of too sort of constitutively allergic to the idea of um, hierarchy or order or really sort of authority of any kind. I suppose is the yeah, I was I, I was sort of basic in quite a basic way like allergic to authority. Um, and if you're if you're quite basically allergic to authority, the idea that actually it could add anything useful or beneficial to your life is you know, just doesn't compute. So and and in that in that context, just be normal. Um, now, I mean, obviously that's not what Grandma actually said. She said, "Grow your hair and get married." But but I mean, you know, from from her perspective, you know, effectively that that amounts to <laughs> can you please just be normal? Um, is, is 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 the gentlest possible version of a suggestion that actually just fitting in with what everybody else is already doing, you know, might actually be a route to happiness. Which, yeah, it didn't make any hit. It was it was counterintuitive to me at the time, but as it turned out, it was right. Um, and I think, and, and it's, I mean, there's a lot of a lot has happened since then, John. And I've I've done a lot more thinking since then. But I think one of the one of the things one of the reflections it left me with. Um, is just how much of the culture is is dedicated to telling people that just be normal is terrible advice, which is not true. Um, I mean, if you think about all of those kids' movies where you know an ant or a bee or a penguin or something, um, you know, becomes a heroic figure by doing something which is which 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 doesn't fit in with everybody else around them, and and it's the story that gets drummed into you by you know from Pixar movies onwards again and again and again that you know what you what you absolutely must not do is just be normal. 
what you absolutely must not do is just do what everybody expects you to do. What you absolutely must not do is fit in with the, the role that everybody has allotted to you because there's it's it's not even it's not even that you'll find that frustrating or, or it's 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 almost presented as immoral or, or a kind of failure uh, an abdication of responsibility to say well, okay fine i'll just go along with that and everywhere the messaging says just be you and and, and there's an implication somehow that whatever it is that just be you means is not going to be oh i'm just going to be an all person um that that's never what it means somehow the, ne- the answer can never be okay i'm just going to be a conventional person who lives in the shires that's two or three kids and um has a nice life and um hangs out with their friends that's that just be you has to mean something different in this it um, has to mean something and, and I, I don't know I, I suppose i'm i'm the kind of nerd who tries to take this take who, who takes that stuff far too literally there's a great many people who just go get get on with being normal anyway um fewer maybe these days but enough of them thank goodness um so I, I took all of that far too literally and tried to tried to have a really good go at just being myself and as it turned out it's it's terrible advice um, it's, you, you have a much nicer life if you make a concerted effort to be normal, um, and, and if you're if you're an eccentric or an unusual person, that will that will just happen anyway. There's nothing you can do about that. I, I can't help wondering what a normal person does do now to be normal. Quite frankly, because it seems to me that in the age of identity politics, we're so atomized uh, and 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 uh, so intent on finding ourselves from within. Uh, that uh, there is no normal and there's not much happiness either. Well, I think that's it. Depends where you are. If you if you spend your time entirely on the internet, which I'm I'm completely, which obviously you don't, and uh, most of I almost don't. Um, <laughs> I spend far too much time on the internet. And if you spend if you spend far too much time on the internet, you'd be forgiven for thinking that yes, that um, there's that there is no normal anymore. But actually, I mean, I live in small town Britain, and there very much is a normal. You know, most most normal people are still pretty normal. Um, you know, people walk their dogs and go to the pub and um, you know, do normal jobs and have normal opinions. And, uh, it's I find it and, and I love it here because because of that. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not I'm not surrounded by people who are ostentatiously trying to trying to flout or subvert the the status quo all the time. People just getting on with life. Um, but if you spend all your time on the internet, you absolutely get the impression that there, there is no such thing as normal anymore. And certain, and I think in some contexts it's kind of true. I mean, in terms of public policy terms, there's there's a very strong sort of political policy pressure against the idea that the state should put its weight behind any particular form of normal. I mean, that's that. I don't know if that's I don't know how true that is in Australia, but it's certainly true in the United Kingdom. I mean, the the Conservative MP Danny Kruger. And the and the MP Miriam Cates have been under a lot of fire relatively recently. For Danny, Danny said something. He 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 made a defence of the normative family, which is to say, married heterosexual couples, intact families raising children, and and was was absolutely roasted to high heaven, including by his own side. Um, Matt Hancock um, said that it, it, that to. To state that even that such family was even normal constituted, you know, it was a completely fringe view in his party. Despite the fact that, I mean, if you were to ask, if you if you were to throw throw a wet haddock into a group of dog walkers, locals to our own in small town Britain, they would absolutely tell you that a married, intact, heterosexual couple raising children is the normative family. That's just you know, that's just what it is. Um, and the, and the fact that the fact that there are a great many single parents who do a superb job in sometimes challenging circumstances doesn't make that any less true. Um, 
so but but the, the point that there's a kind of official if you like an elite consensus um against the idea that there is such a thing as normal and there's a policy consensus against the belief that normal exists um and i, I would even go as far as to say that in some more avant-gardist or progressive quarters there's an active effort um, this sort of active ideological effort to undermine the idea that there is such a thing as a normal, which goes all the way down even to biological levels, you know, sort of technological war on normal human reproduction, for example. And, and there are, you know, and, and the technological war on, on, on normal in a whole host of other fields besides. I mean, biotech is a whole, is a whole I mean, where <laughs> I don't want to go down the, I don't want to go down the biotech rabbit hole, but the, if there's, I can't think of a more literal war on the idea of, of, of biological norms than, than setting out to edit them at the at the genetic level. So so yeah, I mean it, it depends who you ask, I think is the is the long answer to your question. Is the is there such a thing as normal anymore? It depends if you ask if you ask your average dog walker in small town England, they will they will absolutely say there is. If you ask somebody um, in front of a camera who's a who's a member of parliament, um, they they will probably try and fudge the question because from because they'll get absolutely burned at the stake. If they try and make any statement that, that suggests that there is, it's very profound uh, insight there. Of course, in that um, what you're really highlighting is the difference now between the elites, who are really quite disdainful of the common person and the common community. Disdainful is not too strong a word in my view, uh, but the response is despair and disdain from those who feel that the elites patronise them and don't think their views are worthy. Of course, in Britain, in some ways, that played out with Brexit, but it hasn't gone away. And my impression <laughs> is that many people would feel in, that, the, that the experts simply refuse to learn, to learn. They refuse to listen. They refuse to learn. They refuse to take the views of the mainstream, the views that most people would say have stood the test of time seriously, and I wonder just how corrosive all of this is in the end for the body politic. Uh, very much so. I mean, it's absolutely corrosive for body politic. Whether it's going to improve anytime soon, I think is an open question. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not optimistic, to be honest, John. And the reason I'm not optimistic is that uh, you know we may we we all like the idea of democracy and the people having a vote and the people really determining how things go. Uh, I was I was very I was deeply um, dispirited to read Peter Turchin's recent effort. Um well, he, he's I mean he's he's arguing essentially that, that America is is on its on on its way to a revolutionary condition based on um, other previous polities that have found themselves with those structural conditions, too many elites and um, and not, and, but I, but one of the most salient things that he points to is not enough of a mechanism. Uh, he, he he has this grand sort of historical view of um, how polities can end up in in disruptive and chaotic um, in internal situations. And his argument is that one one of the factors that that drives that is too many elites who are competing for the top spot. Um, and all, but 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 also. Um, among elites, an ability to funnel wealth and resources and opportunities upwards to themselves without any countervailing me means from from the masses, if you like, to stop them. And I think, um, in that in that sense, when I look at Britain and I look really at the, at the entire developed world, that's that's what I see in position. The, there simply is no obvious mechanism for for the people to. To, to 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 hold to hold the elite feet to the fire and say, hang on a minute, you can't do this. Um, 
I think the there was a point, and and by I mean sort of real. I, I don't mean being able to vote. <laughs> that's no, sort no. of that, that's kind of the icing on the cake. What, I, what 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 I mean is substantive. So you know what what I mean is leverage. Um, I mean, if you think about if you think about when women were granted the franchise, that was in the in after the First World War in Britain. That was largely as a consequence of the fact that women's women's work was needed because so many men had been killed. So it was simply not tenable to to say, well, we 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 need you to do some, we need you to fill some of these roles that men have filled before, but we're also not going to let you vote. It just it just wasn't possible anymore. So women at that point had the leverage to demand the vote. Um, but I think if you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how. How, how how much lip service we want to pay to the idea of democracy if the if that doesn't come with a corresponding amount of leverage um, it's just you know the your vote just isn't going to mean very much um and i think about i think i think about industrialization in particular in that context and i think about the 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 future as sketched by by futurists like noah yuval Yuval Noah Harari, where he he imagines that um, automation in particular is just going to render a large large sections of the body poli- politic functionally just irrelevant. Yeah, they under those circumstances, it, it's not obvious to me why um, somebody at the top of the of the political hierarchy would pay any attention at all to to how the masses vote. I mean, who cares? You know, they can they can vote for whatever they want, but if they can't actually do anything when it's ignored. Uh, if they don't actually have any means of say of, of if they can't withhold their labor in through through strikes and there is there is no in- industry anymore because it's all been outsourced and in fact most of the wealth in the country comes through financial services which is concentrated in one tiny area who cares what they think i mean it, it literally doesn't matter from from a sort of realist point of view it literally doesn't matter um, and i think that's that's what briefly seemed not to be true after the Brexit vote. And that's what, if you look at what, what has happened, you know, in, in what people have done rather than what they said um, since the Brexit vote, I think that's that's pretty pretty demonstrably the case. Um, it literally doesn't matter what the vast majority of the, elect- the electorate thinks because they just don't, they don't have any leverage. Um, and, and until that changes, and I see no obvious way for it to change, then I don't know, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that, that anything particularly is going to the the the, the disdain that actually is very palpable, I think, from at least some quarters in in government, it is going to is going to modify with anything uh, more uh, listening <laughs> with with more listening or more more of a genuflection to popular desires. I yeah, I don't see it changing. And into all of this mess comes something that I think you touched on, and I think you've also said that. Um, you know, you found much of it not very useful. I would suggest that perhaps it was more than useless. It's actually very dangerous. Uh, the idea of, I mean, critical theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical uh, fat theory, criti- critical queer theory. Uh, this is extraordinary stuff. Uh, and as um, Stephen Pink has pointed out, uh, the idea that it's not only taken hold in academia, but is now spreading out into the community and it finds its way into the education system, into the entertainment industry, into uh, politics and now business as well. How can there be any normal if we base our lives around the concepts of critical theory, in particular that the world's great problem is white supremacy? Uh, I mean, critical race theory, the, 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 that whole architecture of um, grievance studies and white supremacy. I, I post all that 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 bit of post-colonialism and critical race theory sort of post-dated me. I think in the academy, so I'm I'm actually not massively familiar with with the texts. I mean, I I was sort of 
I was inculcated, I suppose, into kind of 90s, 90s and noughties postmodernism, which was a very slightly different piece. But at the risk of getting too theoretical, I don't think all of the insights of postmodernism are wrong, not all of them. Um, there's a the the there's a, the basic insight of standpoint epistemology, I think, is right. You know, I have blind spots but based on my own life experience and where I stand and um, what is or isn't is, is or isn't easily available to me politically. Um, based on who I am and where I exist and where, how I show up in the world, I don't. I, th I think that's that's fundamentally probably accurate. Um, there are, you know, the idea that that language and power inflect how we perceive reality is basically accurate. Um, but but the, the, the I think what's the the difficulty is that the it doesn't follow from that that it doesn't follow from that that the world doesn't exist. It doesn't follow from that that we construct everything sort of ex nihilo based on based on human, on, on it, it doesn't follow that, 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 that we exist in a consensus reality and there's nothing of substance underneath. Reality is still there. Um, it's just a little bit inflected by, by, by factors, some, some, of, some of which are in our control, but most of which are not. Um, so what? I mean, we still have to exist in the world. I still, I, I still inhabit my body and nobody else's body. I'm still female and there's nothing I can do about that. You know, there are, there's a, if, if you like the, 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 the basic critical theory insights i don't know i i look at I, I look at some of the some of the theories that have evolved out of this and they, they sort of fit my my basic rule of thumb about um new in new innovative political theories which is that you know the, it, it's reliably true that whatever whatever means whatever form they make their way out into the world in will be the most stupid reductive and uh, and eventually counterproductive form possible <laughs> so you can you can come up with the most brilliant, subtle, you know, far-reaching, observant, insightful th new theories that you like for for why we are the way they are. But by the time they percolate out to the people in general, they're just going to be dumb slogans. That's just that's just unfortunately true. Um, and I, I look at well, you know, again the the insights of you know, queer theory or critical theory or critical race theory, and I'm and and the the original postmodernists were not wrong about a lot of stuff it's just that it's percolated out into the world in general in in the form of, sort of imbecilic slogans and profoundly destructive um policies and nostra and yeah i think what, what it's been sort of been you know, digested and digested and digested by rank after rank after rank of sort of midwit um third rate scholars until it until it just becomes a set of idiotic slogans which then percolate out into hr departments and become a, a really a, uh, nothing nothing very good um i suppose this is this is mary's elite theory again isn't it but uh, this time this time i'm arguing for the elites <laughs> rather than against them as i was a minute ago uh, make up your mind mary um it's extraordinary how much of an impact um the the idiotic reductive versions well how much of a hold these have come to have over over public policy, um, you know, even even in countries where they don't obviously fit, or where it would seem it would seem sensible to come up with your own version. I mean, America's America's a unique policy in its race politics. You know, it's it's the its history. Um, you know, its its status both as a settler nation and also as a former slaving colony. Um, makes it it makes makes it surely unique and also the world's only superpower. Um, that's the, that's that's a completely unique cocktail. And America's you know I, I visit America quite a lot. I, have, um, I talk to people a lot there about politics, and it's clear that the you know, the the race politics there are bitter 
and intractable and don't, they don't seem to be improving, you know, notwithstanding 50 years of sincere and concerted efforts to improve things. Um, that's, that's really, that's regrettable. And I feel for, I feel for America in having this kind of original sin to try and grapple with. Um, but it doesn't follow from that, that what makes that the theories and the, the sort of radical approaches and the, yeah, the, the, the theories which have, which have emerged in America, um, among American progressives to try and make sense of what's happening in America should, should be propagated throughout the world. But because it's the only, because it's the world's only superpower, um, and because it's kind, of, it's such a media hegemon as well as being such a political hegemon. That's that's inevitably what ends up happening because that's just that's just how how empires work, right? And even if America isn't officially an empire in a in a in a cultural sense, it hundred percent is. And so and so the other the the rest of the Anglosphere ends up being infected with ideas that only really make sense within the American polity. Um, a friend of mine, Tom Owalad, uh, wrote a book about that recently. Where he tried to he he. He did his best to, to to unpick. I mean, he's 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 of immigrant heritage and um, Af Af African heritage, I believe. Um, he's doing his best to unpack just how just how badly American critical race theory makes sense in the context of the United Kingdom. Which, again, you know, our race politics are complicated and not always happy, um, but our history is different, and the the the, the people's the origin stories of of immigrant communities. Um, white communities in the united kingdom is completely different um it, it it's just we just don't have the same backstory at all um and so but 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 it's extraordinarily difficult in our kind of unified anglosphere media ecosystem where it's very difficult to disaggregate the english political argument from the american political argument on the internet because they all just kind of happen in the same placeless place it's extremely difficult to disaggregate arguments about race in Britain from arguments about race in America. Inevitably, they end up sort of cross-pollinating one another, and, of, and a lot of the times, I think that's incredibly counterproductive. And I, I, I don't, I don't know, or I, I'm not very familiar with those kinds of arguments in Australia, but I dare say they happen. And I dare say that as well in Australia, they, they're they're inflected by by what gets pumped out of of the world's cultural hegemon, and and, and that's that's. I'd be surprised if that's any more useful to Australians as, as than it is to British. Uh, well, it is here, and in some ways it's very unhelpful. So in, in a way, a way of summarising what I think you've just put before us, let me test this on you, would be to say that if, if, some, if a school of thought called a critical race theory establishes rightly that the statistics reveal that some people, and perhaps it's, there's a race element to it, are privileged, that may be true, and that may be something you ought to deal with appropriately, but you can also deal with it inappropriately. The inappropriate way is to burn the house down, so to speak, in a sort of um, let's get even sort of mindset, let's tear the place down. The more constructive place would be to say, well, if you're privileged, you ought to be aware of it. You ought to be prepared to double your efforts to do the right thing for other people who are not so fortunate, the noblesse oblige idea that seems to have been washed out of our culture altogether. Would that be a, a, a way of sort of understanding what you were saying about the value of some of these understandings versus the conclusions and actions that arise out of those understandings? Well, I suppose I hadn't really, I hadn't really included uh, the, 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 the privilege uh, theme in my reflections so far, but I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that um, the, the the sort of critical the critical studies argument is that you know 
we should be doing our best to dismantle privileges. Um, that's a sort of central, that, that's a, mm. a central tenet of, of the, the, the grievance studies, if you like. We should be, we should be doing our best to dismantle privileges. Um, I, no one ever really seems, no, no, no one seems to want to contemplate the possibility that possibly we can't. Um, and that there are some which are simply simply immovable because they're. I mean, I'm I'm fond of saying. With, with, I'm sorry, I'm going to start us off down another rabbit hole, John. Um, that a great deal in the in the 21st century, at least. I don't think it was always true. Um, people talk a lot about patriarchy. Um, feminists talk about patriarchy, and it's it's. I've come to think over time that you know in a in a world where actual patriarchy has been largely dismantled, you know what's that, what we actually end up talking about when we talk about patriarchy is Im- Im- immovable, immutable sex differences that we don't like. Hmm. And and the bottom line is that there are some asymmetries which are just not going to go away between the sexes. Um, to what extent that's true across other axes of privilege, I don't know. I think we could be here for we could be here a very long time and get into yes. some very radioactive territory if we if we were to explore that. So let's not go there. But but I but but the the central question I suppose is what if what if we can't dismantle the architecture of privilege? What if there are always going to be elites? And I mean, this is Peter Turchin's argument that there will always be elite. You can't have a functioning polity unless you have a ruling class. And if you if you have a ruling class, then there will probably be some asymmetries in it in terms of its demographics or in terms of yeah in, in terms of who's wielding the power and there are, and there are some, there are some perverse incentives in play. And given given that, um, it seems plausible that we're not going to be able to get away with architectures of privilege. You know, we might be able to. And I mean, and some people some people include accuse the critical studies people of of knowing that perfectly well and simply wanting to dismantle the existing architecture of privilege and replace it with their own. And I think if you look at what they do rather than what they say, there's probably some truth in that. Um, it's, it's not about it's not about making everybody the same. It's just about uh, redirecting the engines of patronage from one one set of one demographic to another. You know, that's in in that case, it's sort of in in a sense, it's 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 simply the latest delivery mechanism for politics as usual. Um, and I think that's I, I see I, I find that argument quite convincing personally. Um, you know, but I mean, the it is. Is privilege something? Is thinking about privilege something we should replace with reflecting on noblesse oblige? Yes, um, absolutely. Again, this comes back to the Turchin insight about uh, the the relationship between elites and the wealth pump and um, political stability and the the masses in general. It comes back to the idea that fundamentally, if you're going to have a ruling class that's that has a sort of functional and stable relationship to the to the masses in general, then a measure of a, a, a pragmatic measure of uh, concession um, is, or, or if you prefer noblesse oblige, um, is is sensible because otherwise sooner or later there'll be a revolution and somebody and somebody else will be and you'll be replaced with somebody else. And um, so there are there are there are solid realist reasons again for for, for noblesse oblige. I suppose what I'm saying is that uh, more than anything else, just saying there's there's always a useful and constructive approach which helps, if you like, build opportunity and uh, human flourishing versus a response which ultimately proves to be atomizing and destructive. That's that was really the only point that I was seeking to establish there. Absolutely, absolutely, I completely agree with you there. I think that this idea that we're going to be any better off simply by burning everything down is demonstrably not true. And all it really does is replace one one architecture of privilege with a different one, um, and and you can 
plausibly ends up just throwing a lot of babies out with the bathwater in the process. Coming to your uh, most recent book, uh, In Feminism Against Progress, I understand you speak of what you call progressive theology, that interesting uh, terms uh, or term. What, what do you mean by it? Well, by progress theology, um, I mean the belief, and I think it's a belief, not a fact, that, yeah, progress, progress theology. Um, I, I simply mean the belief that things can go on getting better indefinitely. Um, on any axis you care to name. Um, I haven't set out to to argue that case in detail in the book because it's it's more of a kind of starting point for everything else which follows. Um, but in the in I think the first chapter I've, I've, I I make the claim that there are there are plenty of other great books you can read that argue against the the belief in progress. And I think one one of the one of the famous ones is Christopher Lash who writes who a book titled The True and Only Heaven where he he, he gives an analysis of the American belief in progress, um, but I've, I've, I've taken as a starting point for the book the, the claim that this is this is not a fact; it's a belief. Um, if you like, it's an ordering belief um, that that it, out of which politics and behaviour and social structures and so on then flow. The idea that that, that progress is a thing. Um, I don't believe in it. Um, the, the the starting point really for all of the reflections that I've. I've laid out in the book is is that um i i, I lost my faith I, I stopped believing in progress theology i just came to think it was it was not true um and it, and it did feel a lot like losing my faith um because it is it, it's a very it's a very metaphysical belief that has has strong uh, trace connections to the christianity which birthed it i mean in a sense progress you know progressivism is a kind of christian heresy in that you know, without Christianity, we don't have the idea of um, history of history having any sort of directionality to it at all. Um, you know, we, the the idea that you, you 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 get over a huge, an enormously long arc from creation through the fall to uh, salvation to the end times to the day of judgment, and then finally to heaven on earth, or heaven um, the and the everything, and finally rejoining our Maker. I mean, that, that's the sort of that's the fundamental Christian. Um, sort of spiritual narrative, the 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 Christian eschatology, um, and the the progressive eschatology is, is is kind of the same. It just get takes it just abstracts the spiritual elements from it and implies that we can achieve all of that here on earth. But it's fundamental structurally, it's the same eschatology as the Christian one. Um, so it's 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 deeply deeply religious in nature. It's deeply religious in origin. Um, it's held by it's so pervasive in the culture today as to be just part of the air that we breathe. The idea that things can get better and things things can and should get better. I mean, it's difficult to think of a of a political party, even on the conservative side, that doesn't, or a think tank, or that that does use the language of moving forward, of you know going forwards rather than backwards. You know, and forwards is always better by definition. And I mean, you know, it's just everywhere. Once you start looking for it, you see progress theology everywhere. It, it's simply it's simply how we make sense of the world. Um, and it's not the only one. I mean, we you don't you don't have to look very far outside outside the Christian West to find plenty of cultures. Uh, I mean, the plenty of cultures where that just don't think about. That don't think about life and the world and history in those terms at all. I mean, it, it, yeah, there, there are there, there are plenty of other ways of making sense of the world. The Chinese and the Indians um, have a completely different religious uh, sort of metaphysical architecture for how they make sense of the big sweep of time. But the the progressive one is fundamentally a Christian one in its structure. 
and it's just there everywhere. And I and I stop believing in it. I, I just don't think it's a thing. Uh, the the specific architecture of you know, attaining heaven on earth over hist over the course of history is, is just not true. So to be a little bit provocative or even cheeky, I'd be interested in your views. Um, I, I suspect a lot of people are realizing that there's not much room for progressive theology now. The evidence is suggesting that we're not going to see it in our lifetime. There's a lot of despair in Western societies. We know that from the research. That's easy to see. Um, so we've rejected Christianity. Um, the theology of progress is sort of uh, looking pretty unappetizing, unreal, unachievable at the moment. Where do we find hope now? Well, I don't, I don't think we have rejected progress theology as the thing. I mean, I, it's it's certainly percolating from from the ground up. Um, people are, people are beginning to have some questions about how how well it's borne out by by reality. Um, but the people at the top, to the extent to to the extent that people are insulated from from stagnation, from uh, from from political unrest, from street crime, etc., and so on. To the extent that people are insulated from that, they they tend still to believe in progress, and I think you can you you see you can see that in the socioeconomic breakdown of how people vote, and I, I, I would I'd be willing to bet that similar patterns are, are visible in Australia as as in the United Kingdom that people are more likely to vote for um, socially progressive parties the wealthier they are. Because the 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 counter of the the counter argument isn't happening all around to quite such an extent. So you can you can still have hope. You can still believe that you know if only if only we fiddle with the policy and give people even even fewer even fewer restrictions and even less of a of a set of social norms, then perhaps everything perhaps we will attain heaven on earth. And yeah, to. And I think that's that. It's still believable if you live in some peaceful, pleasant places where where those the, those policies haven't haven't been implemented fully enough yet it becomes increasingly obvious where, where they have been implemented that that's not really that's not really what happens um but yeah it's a progress is a progress is a belief it's not a fact where, where do we find hope in after peak progress oh that's a big question that's a big question i mean i i, I always have hope I was, but I mean, it's there are there are so many books that I didn't write when I wrote when I set out to write feminism against progress. I I I, I mean, this is this was my learning arc on um, in writing my first book. I thought I was going to have a chance to say everything, and it turns out that actually fifty thousand words is nearly enough. You know, you have to <laughs> you have to be every bit as selective about what you want to say. Um, and so there, you know, there was a there was a book about the, the, there was a book about the end of peak oil and and the end of fossil fuels. Which which is coming. I mean, you know, it's it, even even the most ardent climate denialist will have to accept that the the, the, the just in terms of mass, the the amount of fossil fuel available to 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 power our energy throughput is finite, right? And when it runs out, um, a huge amount of stuff is going to go with it because I I'm, I remain unconvinced that that either nuclear or renewables or anything is going to be is going to it is going to be any sort of a functioning replacement. Um, that's going to do interesting things to economic growth. It's going to do interesting things to our political, our, our, our financial architectures, and our social architectures, and our behaviour. Yeah, it's it's utterly, utterly world-shattering, reality-shattering, and that's a whole. That's a whole. And it, I mean, it has implications for feminism as well. That was the original. That was the original book I set out to write about the the, the dissonance between the women, the women's movement, 
and the environmental movement, which seems obvious to me, in as much as in as much as a great deal of women's liberation is predicated on the existence of labour-saving technologies, which is true. Um, this the the end of the end of easily available consumer goods um, and labour-saving technologies is implies the necessity of quite a diff of quite a radical rethink of women's liberation, uh, and that that's that's a whole other book which I didn't have an opportunity to write. Um, where do I find you know so where do I find hope I, I think big changes are coming likely in our life likely in my lifetime um, probably in both of our lifetimes they're already here um, progress in the theological sense is you know sometimes I think it, it really is as reductive as you know what we think what what we mean when we when we point to progress is is actually mostly energy throughput which is mostly fossil fuels and the and the less the less of the the less of the latter we have, the less of the former we're going to have. Um, and in as much as I have hope, it's because humans are astonishingly adaptable. Um, we've been around for a long time, and this this wouldn't be the first civilization to come and go. And human with with humans carrying on in one form or another. I you know I don't think I don't think we're heading for a, a sort of human you know planet planetary scale human extinction event. I think there's a there's a solid chance that the, this particular way of this this particular form of humans existing on the planet is is not going to last indefinitely but but you know are, are we going to prevail one way or another probably um you know and, and will yeah will, will we find new and new ways of flourishing together probably i mean it's it's a very qualified sort of an optimism but i'm i'm very i have immense faith in adaptability and creativity and robustness and you know and in as much as in as much as a lot of the things which i critique are also inseparable from you know the the, the high energy throughput extractive um civilizational paradigm that we exist in you know maybe maybe, maybe it won't be all bad i think a lot of it's going to suck <laughs> making the trans you know yeah, I, I remember expressing all of this to a to a to a, a conservative local to me who said the thing the thing to remember mary is if you read gibbon you read it quite quickly, but actually, all of that stuff happened over quite a long period of time. And if you if you were living through the fall of the Roman Empire, you know you probably you probably just lots most of the people who lived through the fall of the Roman Empire actually had fairly peaceful lives. You know, it was just it was just that some things changed, and not not all of them for the better. And you know, maybe maybe, maybe that's maybe that's what we're looking at now. There's plenty of opportunities still to lead good. I mean, there are always plenty of opportunities to lead good and decent lives, even if. The world as we know it is in fact coming to I don't know. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure if that's the hopeful message you were looking for. Well, I think what I would take out of that is a powerful reminder that in the end, not only are we adaptive, but when you come back to basics, you start to think about what really matters. Surely, in the end, we're the thing to recognise is that we're not only adaptive; we're relational. We're relational human beings. So I'd like to absolutely. come to um, on that. So um... just absolutely, I think the, the the angle that I've taken on all of these questions in the book um, is to to underline the fact that if we're going to weather some potentially quite bumpy um, transitional years to come, which few people would few people would dispute, given you know the sort of rolling poly crisis, you know, one of the from a from a feminist point of view, from a from a from the point of view of pursuing women's interests, um, actually, the, po the the point to retrench to and to to refocus on is is solidarity, you know, solidarity between the sexes, and re rebuilding, you know, 
perhaps perhaps setting down some of our, our belief that we can and should all be trying to go it alone and refocusing on, on what how we can show up for one another. Well, I'm quoting you directly here. You wrote, uh, by the end of, the, of your 20s, I had concluded that sexual freedom brings alienation. Uh, alienation means, amongst other things, loneliness, I suppose, uh, a breaking of relationships. What did you know and understand by your late 20s that you hadn't seen in your mid to late teens, if I can put it that way? I suppose I'd just done a bit more dating. You know, I, I sort of, I prefer to prefer to draw a veil over the gory details because none of it was, I mean, none none of it was especially great or fun or long lasting. Um, yeah, I I experimented some. I experimented plenty. Um, came came grimly to the conclusion that if you if you prioritize uh, endless optionality by which i mean always having the opportunity to to walk away and to be somewhere new i suppose the modern this was all before the dating apps but the this this has been literalized for a generation or so younger than me by the existence of dating apps where you can just scroll and find find a new potential sexual partner you know pretty much as though you're shopping on amazon so in a sense, the, 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 all, all the incentives now work against the idea of finding somebody and settling down with them because there's, you have all of these, all of these things um, beeping on your phone, reminding you that there's plenty more fish in the sea. But I, I suppose the, even prior to that, this sort of the moral architecture for, 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 for that basic paradigm was already there. And I suppose have, has, had been sort of developing since the, since the sexual revolution. Um, and it's in, and if, but if you if you take as your sort of basic your your, your core belief and um, the idea that there are always plenty more fish in the sea, then then you're never really going to make much of an effort to to compromise with another person. You're never going to make much of an effort to to find somebody with the kind of traits that would suit a long term relationship. You're never gonna you're never gonna be filtering for you'll 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 be filtering for fun or you'll be filtering for novelty or you'll be filtering for emotional intensity or you'll be filtering for you know all sorts of things which make for uh, they make for great anecdotes or uh, an interesting an interesting weekend but not necessarily what makes for lifelong partnership. Um, and I suppose I I did that for a while um, and it was interesting and made for some great anecdotes and some some fun weekends. But um, yeah, I'd, yeah, not really, not not necessarily for, well, definitely not for lifelong partnership. And I can't remember the point when I can't remember the point exactly where I I made a more or less conscious decision to think about it differently. But I did um, at some point. Um, I well, I can I can remember dating like that, and then I can remember. Uh, realizing that I was effectively, you know, in quite an old-fashioned way, dating to marry, and I don't remember that being a particularly conscious decision, but I think my grandma's advice probably did play into it. Um, at that point, I realized I was just filtering for quite a different set of things um, in in the people who in the people who I was wanting to spend some time with. Um, yeah, no, no regrets. It was it was the best it was the best thing I could possibly have done was to change was to adjust my adjust my paradigm in that way um the the advice i tend to give people who you know, young younger women who ask me about this now is you know don't don't waste don't don't wait don't be me um don't yeah don't don't spend your 20s doing that if you're certain that what you want is a settled family life you know be clear be clear about 
how you should be thinking about it. Um, you know, and don't don't waste your time with charmings or sketchy guys or um, players. You know, don't just don't do that because it, it's not going to do you any good. Uh, and you'll end up you'll, you'll you'll just end up where I did. You know, with with as many miles on the clock as I did, and that's that's not that's not that's not necessarily the best way to start married life either. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's very, again, it's sort of slightly battered and bruised advice to, to, to the younger generation, whether or not any of them will, will listen to my suggestion on that front. I don't know. My sense is that relations between the sexes now have got so embittered. Again, this, this might just be a case of not going outside enough. And that for all I know, there are plenty of young people who are doing just fine. But my, my sense is that the, the, the culture percolating out of the internet is actively counterproductive where it comes to forming new relationships and forming long-term relationships. Um, and I do, I, do, I do wonder as well whether there, whether there isn't more that older generations, particularly older women, could be doing um, to, to push against that. And I think if we, leave, if we leave family formation up to the dating apps, we're basically screwed. You know, it's all of us collectively because we won't we won't be um, putting our heads together. But older people won't won't have been doing what we should be doing um, to support family formation among the young. I don't think I don't think they should be left entirely to it to their own devices. Um, you know, tradition traditionally it's been you know interfering in in the in the romantic lives of, of younger men and women has been absolutely the preserve of the middle aged like me, and to in a, to a very modest degree. Um, I, I meddle in the I meddle in the romantic lives of, of friends who are somewhat younger than me. My my great friend Louise Perry, another reactionary feminist, has recently taken to organising singles nights because she was she had so many so many young men and women write to her saying how how earth am I meant to find a partner, and that she ended <laughs> that she ended up organising a sort of Deb's dance for her readership, which was apparently a great success. I mean, whether whether any marriages will come out of it or not, I don't know. But we've we've come to the conclusion that there's a there's there's a missing piece of uh, life interfering from and it has to come from older women. I think there are. I read recently about um, a, a conservative man who has set out to to run to run basically a dating service for young conservative men and women in in the United Kingdom. To me, that just seems weird. Like the incentives are all wrong. Men shouldn't be involved in um, in in matchmaking it just is i just think that's yeah the the, the perverse the, the opportunity for the opportunity for things to go wrong and for perverse incentives is just way too great i think you have to you you have to have the the typical you know married mother of however many um <laughs> abstract interest in interfering in people's personal lives to, to be able to do that at all healthy but 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 there's a there's a missing there's a missing social space there which where, where i where i think yeah, I, I think older women can can potentially step up and, and do a bit more there. The missing aunties. Oh yeah, that was <laughs> that was that that was the. I remember a, a young a guy who I who I worked with once. Um, he was Indian hair. He was British Asian, um, and he was being he was being uh, carted around the the British Asian arranged marriage circuit while we were working together. And he used to come in on a Monday morning and regale us with his exploits. And and he used to talk about the aunties, and by that he meant the network of older women in his community, all of whom knew one another and gossiped with one another. He didn't just mean you know, his 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 father's his father and mother's siblings, but the auntie was a auntie is a sort of honorific, which which encompasses a much broader range of 
a, a much broader range of older women. It basically means like older women who feel entitled to meddle in your life. <laughs> and it strikes me that there are there are aunties that are missing in our culture, and yeah, perhaps they drive us up the wall if we had them back. But also, also their absence leaves a gap. Well, we may be missing uncles as well. I'd have to say, but I'd also want to just quite sincerely commend you on being courageous enough to be vulnerable uh, and courageous enough to be honest, because I'm sure there are people everywhere looking for aunts. Well done. I think that's terrific. Um, uh, you, you mentioned your friend Louise Perry. I think she commented that um, the arrival of a new baby is not just about the creation of a baby, a new human being. It's also of something else that's new, usually. Um, it creates parents. You've been through that experience. I understand mm -hmm. you know, the first baby was yes. a big moment. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I think, yes. Absolutely. I think that was that was really if losing my faith started started this trajectory, having a baby completed it in the side. I was always I was already I already had some questions about progress theology, but having a baby was kind of the nail, the nail in the coffin for this that, that basic paradigm. Because if there's a you know, if if progress theology has an end point, it's uh, complete individualism. You know, that, that's the telos of progress, you know, things getting better to the extent that people become more and more free, I think would be a sort of reductive, a sort of crude but fairly accurate summary of, of that that belief. You know, to, to the extent that people become more and more free to be themselves, then we are making progress. Um, and I came, I, after I had a baby, I came to think that more and more free um, is, is not a, is not, it's not a good enough, it's not a rich enough summary of what it means what what it means to be a person in relationship with others so in in the sense that if you if you have a baby you're you're considerably less free but it didn't feel like i was it didn't feel like a step backwards and and i had to, i had to do my best to make sense of that and it was a very visceral it was literally a visceral experience i mean i grew i grew my daughter in my literal viscera um and became you know and and it's a very literal experience of becoming less free you know you're functionally disabled by the time you're heavily pregnant you need help getting up and down you know some people literally are you know and have to get around on crutches because it messes with their hips um you've got you're you're, you're heavy and you're ponderous awkward and I, I never ever ever once we were renovating our house at the time and i had to <laughs> i had to repaint the banisters up and down the stairs while eight months pregnant and i never want to do that again because it was so uncomfortable you know just try, trying to trying to paint trying Trying, trying to paint these, get into these awkward corners around this enormous bump that's kind of that's part of your midsection is just horrible. Um, but it was all worth it, you know, because then you got this, you got this amazing new little person. And and what what was really what was so extraordinary about it, and was I, I just had no idea about the, the the real kind of going through the looking glass moment was when I realised. I mean, she felt like she'd been just part of my body, getting more and more kind of palpably part of my body for nine months, and then after she was born, she didn't stop feeling like part of my body. That's and that just completely melted my, yeah, just blew all of my assumptions out of the water. It was as though I'd grown an extra limb, um, and then that limb was somehow weirdly detached from me and and still needed looking after, and the the desire to to look after her well-being um, was was as strong as the desire would be to look up to make sure my own my own arms and legs are okay it's it's that that immediate the idea that something something could harm or injure your child um, after they've been in, inside your body for nine months is as is as immediate and totally all-consuming as the the instinctive desire to look after your own extremities and the idea that harm could come to them is just horrific 
um, it, at that exactly the same level. And, you know, it, 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 mess, it messes with your, um, it, yeah, it, it's a totally mind-altering experience becoming a mum at, a, at, a, at an absolutely physiological level. It re literally rewires your brain. Um, it completely changes your hormonal makeup. So you're totally transforms your, your outlook on life. Um, and I, I felt, yeah, I felt merged completely kind of, um, completely merged with my baby for some time. And it actually, that only wears off very gradually. I think it was, I think my daughter was a year and a half old before I felt comfortable being away from her for any length of time. Um, and and I, I know there are plenty of mums who have to be apart from their babies at a much younger age than that. But I, but I think it's more often than not, it's a real wrench to do it. Um, yeah, people get used to it, but it, but it sucks. Um, because that's not that's not the the basic instinctive desire. The instinctive desire is to, is more to be around, is to feel that that sense of um, that sense of fusion. Even and and I think it's that it's a challenging experience when you've been raised to believe that separateness and autonomy is the the ultimate moral good and is you know by by definition evidence of progress because on the one hand you 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 value your autonomy i i, I still prize my autonomy and on the and, and a great many women do and on the other hand you have this basic kind of animalistic um pre-rational um, sense of merger with with this completely dependent little human being and it's very difficult to make those two things add up it's and you know women women struggle with this in all sorts of different ways and some some just throw themselves into the mummy thing and some 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 really struggle or but it's it's very it's very rare to find a modern a modern woman who who doesn't really grapple with that paradox and and what i what i set out to try and make sense of when i my starting point for writing feminism against progress was was just trying to grapple with that paradox you know how have we ended up with a culture the you know, sort of a completely accepted ideology that just suffuses the culture from top to bottom which is so constitutively at odds with the experience of being a mother it just how how did we end up there? And how has that become so identified with feminism, which is meant to be the the, the political movement um, you know, that, that pursues women's interests? You know, when when the majority of women still are mothers, you know, how, how did we end up with a women's movement that has such a mother-shaped blind spot? And I, I, I realised as I as I dug into it that, it, that that's not, that's, that's less than accurate, that in fact, feminism doesn't have a mother-shaped blind spot, that the the women's movement has always engaged in a in, in very rich and fractious way with the question of being a mother. It's that the dominant, the prevailing, the, the line that comes through, the line that wins out again and again and again, is the one, is the, is the one that excludes um, that sense of relationality and that sense of maternality. Um, and, and I set out to answer the question, you know, how, how do we end up there? Why, why is it that care is always the poor relation? Why is it that Mothering is always the poor relation. Yeah, you know, why, why, why are mother, why, why are mothers marginalised? Um, why do the maternal feminists get a little marginal footnote, and the the, the liberation feminists get get the main history book? Yeah, how how why does that keep happening? And and the rest of the book is sets out to answer that question and a, and a few other ones besides. Um, but but yeah, that was that was really my that 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 was how I started how I found myself trying to answer that question as well because I really prized my. I, I believed wholeheartedly up to that point that more freedom was always by definition better. And then I found myself in a situation where exercising my freedom to not get up in the night and feed my, my screaming child was just not, you know, that, that was unthinkable. You know, this idea that, you, you know, more freedom would say, that actually, you should have a right to just lie there and say, no, I don't want to. But, that's, but it's just not true. And it doesn't feel true. 
and and everybody most most you know common sense would say that that, that would be just obviously wrong and you know something would something would have obviously gone very wrong in your in your postpartum mental health if you were just lying there listening to your hungry child screaming um and saying no i'm not going to get up and feed them because i don't want to um and i, sh- I should have my freedom to not to not do it you know you, pe- people would look at a mother who was behaving like that and say you, you, you're right you can do something something's gone obviously gone very wrong um yeah but but it's it's a lot to it's it's a lot to adjust to um when every when when the entire culture has basically been lying to you up to that point about um how, how humans actually work. The idea of individual freedom in the end seems to involve an enormous amount of selfishness for a lot of people. And I think in a sense you've touched on it. You said something very interesting. You said it was 18 months before you felt comfortable being separated from your daughter. Uh, and you're able to articulate that. Your child at that age can't. At what age do you think your daughter might have been comfortable being separated from you? Well, this is this is the question. I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very that's an incredibly moving target because it, it's sort of you know how much separation and who's there in the meantime and for how long um, and yeah, but I hope, and you know what what's the environment like during separation? You know, these are this that's such a moving target that it's it's very difficult to give a definitive answer to that. Um, I, I can remember sort of borderline having a panic attack when my daughter was, I think, four or five months old, and I had to, I just had to go to the dentist, and the dentist was running late, and so she'd woken up from her nap by the time I got home. But but my mum was like, I've, and I should have, you know, it was it was fine because my mum was there, and and she she was yeah, my daughter was fine, but I completely freaked out. And I was sitting there in the waiting room just like because because I, I knew you know the the idea of my daughter waking up and me not being there, not being able. To be there for her when she was awake was just so appalling, but that was sort of you know four or five months old. And by the time she was, yeah, but but by the time she was two, it was a completely different ballgame. You know, she'd she'd be perfectly happy with somebody else. You know, a trusted a trusted other who who I I knew was fine and who I knew would care for her and who she knew, um, she'd be fine for a few hours um, to be with somebody else. Um, yeah, it's a it, it's a very but but you know if I left her on her own with strangers, for 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 a whole day at the age of two, she'd have absolutely hated it. So you know it depends on so many different things. Um, at what age? What age is it fine to? I mean, if I, anecdotally, and this is a very not scientific um, sample of just some mums, some mums who had children about the same time as I did. Um, I mean, in Britain, relative to some countries, we have fairly generous maternity provision, in that you know if you can take six months paid and six months unpaid. And so most most mothers who can afford it will go back to work after about a year. Um, I think it's, you know, anecdotally, that's too soon. You know, a 12-month-old baby is still a baby. Um, and most of the mothers who I spoke to about it would have preferred 18 months. Because something, some, I, I don't know what it is that, that changes around then, but, you know, they get a bit more exploring and a bit more verbal and a bit more noticing and a bit more interested in the world around them. Um, and a bit more separation and become then starts to feel emotionally plausible at about eighteen months. But it depends on so many other factors that I think it's it's difficult to give a give a defining answer. But I mean, what what I what I absolutely do know is that the whatever whatever the horrible statistic is, like one in four or something mad like that, of American babies who are who are put into daycare at two weeks old is just horrendous. You know, that's absolutely not an age at which babies should be separated from their mothers. I mean, it's not even legal to separate puppies from mothers. 
uh, two weeks old. So you know, why why we imagine it would be okay to do that to human children who develop so much more slowly is completely beyond me. It's barbarous. Wow. Interesting way of putting it. Another quote, women will, own, will, women will succeed at feminism only insofar as we succeed at not being mothers. It suggests that you see a contradiction between the goals of feminism and the, and the calling of motherhood. You've, you've touched on that. Um, how do you think the leaders of this sort of argument reconcile it with something else you've referred to, which is that most mothers would prefer instinctively feel the need to spend more time with their with their young um I, I, i'm going to go back to that quote and just nuance it a little bit because um, it's in, in I, I made that statement in in the context of a much broader argument you know, women, will, women will succeed at feminism to the extent that we that, that we're not mothers um applies specifically to what I think of as the, the dominant victorious strand of this movement, which is sort of well, what you might call magazine feminism, which is what we live with in the mainstream now, which is the, the, the feminism of freedom, um, which is, and I just want to underline the fact that it's not the only feminism ever. Um, and in the book I've, I did, I went into some depth on retrieving some, some other feminisms which preceded it. I think there's a hugely interesting body of, of work among 19th century women um, in responding to the Industrial Revolution in, in a whole host of different ways, lo lots of which are, would, are not intelligible in the, term, in, in the terms of 21st century feminism, because they, they were not the feminisms of freedom. Um, so there's a, whole, there's a whole other, there's a whole lot more to it than, you know, women will succeed at feminism to the extent that we're not mothers. But that, but that is the dominant strand that we've ended up with uh, today. Um, it's one which prizes autonomy um, over relationality, um, and 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 sees sees that as by definition, uh, you know, what what's going to be better for women. Um, how 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 are mothers meant to flourish under under that paradigm? Uh, well, what what are we meant to do? How are we meant to make sense of it? How are we meant to? Um, I think that you know that's it, you very you can very easily get into the weeds on policy about uh, when, when it comes to. Because so many of these questions really are concrete, and there are, you know, there's a school of thought that says, you know, the the solution, the, the way of squaring this circle, is the the way of squaring the circle is more childcare, and then there are others who say, no, actually, the way of squaring the circle is uh, making it more affordable for them to stay at home. And the answer is probably both. Um, you know, the Catherine Hakim was a sociologist, sort of lightly cancelled, I suppose, who did some great research on this in the noughties. Um, and has argued persuasively, I think, that um, you know, based on her research, um, roughly sixty. Yeah, so so it, it breaks it breaks down roughly sixty forty, um, or sixty twenty twenty. So if, if you ask women, all, all other things being equal, what would you prefer? Would you rather spend most of your time at work? Would you rather spend most of your time at home, or would you rather have a mixture of the two? And maybe roughly twenty percent um, would just just want to prioritize work, and some of those won't have kids. And some of those will just put their kids in full-time daycare. Um, another twenty percent would just like to be full-time mums. Um, would, would I say just? You know, it's a it's a entirely noble and legitimate course of action. Um, it, but roughly twenty percent would like to spend spend their whole time being stay-at-home mums. The rest, the the, the remaining sixty percent would like a balance, please. Um, so that which is that that is the majority of women would like some some life and um, 
um, so some some things going on outside the home, one form or another, and would also would also like to have plenty of time to, to be available to their kids. Um, and to to me, that seems like a. I mean, anecdotally, that feels about right. That there are some women who are just not very interested in being mums. Some women who for for whom that's 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 life. And 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 the rest, you know, we're we're, we're kind of muddling through one way or another. And from a and once and, and getting and I think that's to me that would be a good basis for getting into the weeds on policy to think that actually actually for the most part, if we're to try and find a solution that sort of roughly fits how people normally are, you know, can we can we try and find ways of 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 supporting supporting women to achieve that that kind of a balance? Um, unfortunately, what seems to happen partly partly because of the interests of partly in the interest of economic growth and also partly in, in the interests of the way um, the, the 20% who, who really are, are, are mostly interested in work are overrepresented in policy making and legislation for obvious reasons. Um, you know, you, you, have to be, you have to be a pretty driven careerist to end up in those places, right? Um, and, and so because those women are overrepresented, they tend to universalize their own worldview and, and assume that that's that's what every woman is going to want. It's just not true. I mean, if you're if you're a lawyer or a politician, then you know you're going to be you're going to be much more you, you you've there's much more you you have a much more interesting set of work opportunities to sacrifice being with your kids for than if you're putting packets through a scanner. Um, and 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 yet, unfortunately, you know, once you roll out policies that that would be that would be a good fit for a barrister. Um, or I, I, I always I always come back to the example of barristers in this in this case, but you know, a barrister or a doctor or a management consultant or whatever, and you roll those policies out all the, all the way down the social scale, including including to those women who have jobs rather than careers, then it's it's not obvious to me that you're you're really serving those women's interests. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a complex. You know how, how you how you resolve that? I don't know. I mean, again, Miriam Cates, who I mentioned earlier in the in the British discourse, she's one of the very few. Um, she's one of the very few politicians um, I've, I've seen making making the case, you know, sticking up for those women who have jobs rather than careers, and arguing for policies which which would support women pursuing a balance rather than um, just ever more ever more time in work. And for that, again, she gets brickbats. It's extraordinary, you know, even from her own side. Um, so the you know the political forces ranged against what to me seems like a very centrist and common sense argument. You know, supported by sociological research on what what women actually prefer. Um, it, yeah, the the forces ranged against that are, are considerable, um, uh, and I yeah, it's unfortunate. It's not only what women would prefer; it's what children need. And it seems to me that that is simply almost Absolutely. never taken into the equation. And a society that yep. doesn't yep. look to the needs of its children is a society in the end with a death wish. Yep, I, I could not agree more. And, and that goes can, even that goes a, a lot wider than the childcare question. You know, I think children's children's needs are disregarded uh, across a whole a whole host of a whole host of other you know, mostly very contentious topics, where yes. uh, and from gestational from from gestational surrogacy through to um, family formation and you know. The, the rights and wrongs of when you should or shouldn't try and keep your marriage together, all, all, all yeah, through, through a whole year, <laughs> down to areas which I'm, I'm not going to get into because they're just more radioactive than I think we have time for in this discussion. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I do make the point sometimes, though, that I find it a terrible reflection on modern culture that we are so quick to judge those who have gone before us without uh, examining who we're marginalising and whose lives we're discounting, and whose lives we are not fully respecting. 
because our culture does it just as the cultures we so readily criticise that have gone before us have done. It's just we do it in different ways. But to move I on, because you're true. being very generous with, sorry, with your time, you've, you've written a lot no, about personhood and transhumanism. I was just wondering if we could explore a couple of issues there as we come into land. Yes, I, I mean, it's a, it's a theme I come back to again and again. I mean, if we're going to, I, I, we touched on this very early in the conversation when I talked about the, the, the technological war on normal, which I think is it's a, it's a, a governing theme of where we are now, really, really across the board. I mean, when, when, when politicians and visionaries and futurists talk about the fourth industrial revolution, that's, that's fun. You know, what they're talking about is biotech and what they're talking about is a, a technological a move, move a, a technological move into the, the sort of building blocks of life itself. Um, experiment experiments re-engineering you know living living creatures and and potentially potentially up to and including re-engineering human beings and you know there are lots of live culture war issues at the moment um, concerning uh, you know whether whether or how far we should be able to meddle with the human genetic structure you know whether it's whether it's appropriate or right or even plausible to 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 explore you know artificial gestation whether it's appropriate or right to explore um, creating creating gametes in a laboratory out of out of other DNA. There was a there was, <laughs> there was a uh, a report out recently about some Japanese scientists who'd successfully created um, who'd successfully grown live mice out of cells with cells created from the genetic material provided by two male mice. Um, you know, obviously breath, breathless headlines follow about about you know gay couples being able to have children related to both parents and you know you can you can accomplish all of this in a laboratory and, and you know of course and that sets off a whole question you know can we can we and how safe would it be and should we and i mean it's it's this is this is this too too huge and too complex an area really to get into in, in any detail and the one thing i would say is that if your if your vision as as it does for the for the technologists and and I suppose particularly for the transhumanists, is predicated on the idea that normal is at best a baseline to to improve on and at worst an outright enemy of your personal freedom, then ultimately people, ultimately the, the group which will end up bearing the weight of your um, insistence on, of the, the, ultimately the group that, that will pay the price will be children. Because um, if you're experimenting with normal, where it comes to creating new life, it, it, in, inevitably that's going to mean, yeah. It, it, whenever those experiments go wrong, um, the people, the, the individuals for whom it will most palpably go wrong, will be the babies themselves. You know, whether they're, whether, whether that's embryos that you're you're creating and then euthanizing in a petri dish, or whether it's baby, you know, it's, it's the the first attempt to create a baby in an exo womb that turns out to be some horrific. A thing that needs to be euthanized um, ultimately you know the or whether it's you know, babies raised in situations which are which are simply not developmentally appropriate for babies um yeah the um, the the horror scenarios are potentially limitless <laughs> um and 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 the and the suffering is almost all borne by by those least able, you know, least able to shoulder it because they're they're newborn babies or infants or completely defenseless so i mean but i'm gonna i'm gonna swerve a sort of bigger picture of transhumanism you know should can we or should we try and try and remodel um, human norms and and just say that if you're what well, the, the the thing for me 
um, not to lose sight of when we when we talk about re-engineering humans. When re-engineering the human, re-engineering humans is who the most vulnerable really is um, in this context. And actually, the the most vulnerable in the context of human beings is always babies. And those are the and and, and it's the most vulnerable who are asked to pay the price when we set out to re-engineer re ourselves. Well, you've given us a very great deal to think about indeed. And perhaps at some stage, uh, it might be possible for us to reconvene to consider some of these matters as things unfold in the future. Uh, but for the time being, um, I can only thank you for your deep insights and your incredible honesty. I think the way in which you are prepared to, as I touched on a moment ago, be as honest and as vulnerable as you are means that there will be many who will be greatly encouraged, not just to think through carefully how they construct their own lives, their own relationships, but perhaps also to become champions for what might be called true freedom, which is never license. Hmm. Very true. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.